We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 531 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, March 20th, 2023. You know, it was a little more than four years ago, January 2019, to be precise, uh, that then Redskins President Bruce Allen said that the skins were close. It means you're close. Yes, thank you, Bruce. It means you're close. Famous words from the man who on this podcast we call Brucifer. <laughs> well, it sure does seem that we are close to the sale of the Commanders. Uh, what <laughs> a night Saturday night was. All kinds of rumors flying around, especially on Twitter, regarding the sale of the Commanders having been agreed on. Now, nothing is official. Heck, there still isn't an actual concrete report that the sale of the commanders has been agreed on with a specific party. And, you know, when I say report, I'm not talking about uh, Joe6437 who tweeted, oh yeah, the sale is done, okay? Uh, But we do have various indications that a sale at the very least is, yes, close. It means you're close. That's right, Brucifer. Close. Hello and welcome to this Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. This is the podcast that follows Washington, D.C. area sports so that you don't have to because following sports is work. Let us do the work for you. You have enough going on in your life. Uh, Saturday night was bonkers. The rumors (laughs) that were flying around were exciting and wild and irresponsible all at the same time. My favorite rumor was that the group that appears to be the favorite to buy the commanders, the Josh Harris Mitchell Rails group, was at Maggiano's in Chevy Chase, Maryland, in a private room celebrating having agreed on a deal to buy the commanders. Look, maybe those guys were at Maggiano's celebrating. I just got a kick out of two billionaires in Harrison Rails, two big machers in Harrison Rails dining at Maggiano's. I mean, Maggiano's is where I used to take girls on dates, okay? I mean, it's a nice place, but if you're a billionaire, 
not sure that you're celebrating a multi-billion dollar transaction <laughs> by dining at Maggiano's. Like, how do we know that Harrison Rails weren't at the Olive Garden, you know, or the Cheesecake Factory, or Ruby Tuesdays, or TGI Fridays, or an Arby's somewhere? I don't know. Anyway, coming up next segment, I will sort through all that has been out there in recent days regarding the sale of the Commanders. And then I'm going to welcome on a special guest for a proper deep dive on someone whose role in the sale of the Commanders is of extreme significance, but whose role in the sale of the Commanders remains unclear. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. I'm going to speak with Brad Stone, who is the author of two books about Jeff Bezos. Uh, You are going to get an objective, no-holds-barred breakdown of Jeff Bezos, the businessman, and Jeff Bezos, the person. What exactly would the commanders be getting in him as an owner? What are his strengths? What are the valid critiques? Uh, We all know the name Jeff Bezos, but as the sale of the commanders may well be nearing its completion, and as it could be that he is the one buying the team, it is time to learn all that we can about one of the richest and most famous people on the planet. You know, Jeff Bezos, as of early Monday morning, was the number three richest person in the world with a net worth of $122.1 billion per Forbes. Author Brad Stone on Jeff Bezos is coming up. Also on the show, the Capitals. A bad weekend for them. Uh, Two losses. Friday night, a 5-2 loss to the St. Louis Blues at Capital One Arena. Sunday afternoon, a 5-3 loss at the Minnesota Wild in a game that featured a controversial hit on center of Genny Kuznetsov and also featured a big performance by winger Alex Ovechkin. There has been a lot with the Caps in recent days, but here's the bottom line. The Caps continue to look like a team uh, that will not be making the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, I will talk college basketball, the NCAA tournament. What a wild tournament it has been. Unfortunately, the uh, many upsets have not included eight-seeded Maryland defeating one-seeded Alabama in Birmingham, Alabama on Saturday night in the second round. The Terrapin season is over. A 73-51 loss on Saturday night. I'll address that, including the overall very good season that the Terps had. Uh, I'll also hit on VCU off the end of its season. The uh, 12-seeded Rams losing to 5-seeded St. Mary's 63-51 in Albany, New York on Friday afternoon in the first round of the NCAA tournament. And I will discuss our Wizards. Uh, Two losses for them over the weekend. That, though, is a good thing. Uh, That is what is in the best interest of the organization, uh, which is trying to win but continues to lose. Uh, Friday night, a 117-94 loss at the Cleveland Cavaliers. Saturday night, a 132-118 loss to the Sacramento Kings at Capital One Arena. Not much defense from the Wizards over the weekend. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of emails on the commander's quarterback situation of them losing Taylor Heineke as an unrestricted free agent to the Atlanta Falcons and signing unrestricted free agent Jacoby Brissett and, of course, positioning Sam Howell to be the QB1 for the 2023 season. Email from David Hilliard of our Jacoby Brissett discussion On last Thursday's show, episode 529, writes David, I am listening to your breakdown of Jacoby Brissett versus Heineke and the argument for and against. I believe everyone is missing the most important point. Heineke already has a rapport with Sam Howell, the team, and even the fans. I don't see the team winning any more games with JB. 
There won't be a quarterback competition. Almost never is. Taylor's strength is that he's a bowler. When I see him play, I am reminded of Eli Manning, a guy who seemed to have a knack for making big plays in big games. Most of the Giants fans who I know, and there are a lot of them, uh, had nothing great to say about Eli, and his stats were often pretty bad. Joe Flacco also has been like that. You have called this luck, but I disagree. When someone can repeatedly do stuff like this in big moments, it is instinctive and a product of focus. JB may have better stats than Heineke has, but the only stat that I care about is wins. We have traded, essentially, a fan favorite who has a knack for making big plays for an unknown and for more money. Admittedly, I am biased as I have taken a great liking to Heineke. Perhaps I also will like Brissett, but just looking at this logically, if Brissett was really any good, he wouldn't be on his fifth NFL team now. Moreover, the way that Ron Rivera handled this whole thing leaves a lot to be desired. From my vantage point, Ron was never in Taylor's camp. I don't understand that because Heineke basically saved Ron's backside. I have also, from the beginning, said that if Washington had just gone with Heineke, given the benefit of offseason work and first-team reps instead of first Fitzpatrick and second Wentz, I think that Washington would have been in the playoffs in 2021 and 2022. So my assessment is that we have traded Heineke for Brissett and for more money. If we win any more games by having Brissett on the roster, I'll be surprised. It's also not a future-thinking move, as it is a one-year deal. Hopefully none of this matters, because as I have predicted, Howell will emerge as a really good quarterback. We'll see but I will be rooting for the Falcons against everyone but Washington. Uh, Thank you for the email, David. You know, I think that one of the toughest things with Taylor Heineke is properly accounting for his clutch plays and his wins within the context of his overall work, which statistically speaking, wasn't very good with Washington. Like, objectively speaking, his stats over the 2021 and 2022 seasons were in the bottom third of quarterbacks in the NFL. But both aspects of Taylor deserve recognition. It's unfair and wrong to not acknowledge and to not praise him for his clutch plays and his wins. Like those things did happen. He deserves credit for those things. But it's also wrong to ignore the overall body of work. And keep this in mind, some of these advanced stats in which uh, Tay-Tay did not rate so well uh, do take circumstance into account, i.e. do account for things like clutch plays. One of the biggest reasons that you hear me use advanced stats like ESPN's total QBR and Football Outsider's DVOA metric is that those stats do factor in context, factor in things like down in distance and score and time left in game and quality of opposing defense, etc. And Taylor, when viewed through the prisms of total QBR and DVOA, hasn't been that good. And to just ignore that, okay, to just completely dismiss that to me isn't the way to go. I think that it's always important to step outside the uh, commander's bubble and recognize how commander's players compare with players around the NFL. Because if all that you do is evaluate commander's players within uh, commander's context, within the commander's bubble, I think that your perception uh, can get rather skewed. But look, I wanted the commanders to re-sign Taylor Heineke. I advocated for the commanders to re-sign Taylor. Email from Chris Rossi writes, Chris, hey Al, this narrative that Howell has almost no chance of becoming a productive starter solely because he was drafted in a fifth round is driving me nuts. By my count, 17 players selected before Howell used the extra year of eligibility due to COVID taking them out of the equation, and Howell is a mid-fourth rounder in any other draft. 
The odds of a fourth rounder becoming a solid starter aren't great, but they're not zero. I won't include late round quarterbacks drafted a long time ago. Unitas, Jurgensen, Staubach, Blanda, Starr, Moon, O, and Theismann and Rippin. But here are some guys drafted in a fourth rounder later since 1990 who I would have been thrilled to have. Mark Bulger, Mark Burnell, Brad Johnson, Matt Hasselbeck, Tom Brady, Trent Green, Dak Prescott, Kirk Cousins, Aaron Brooks, David Garrard, Jeff Garcia, Tony Romo, Kurt Warner, Jake DeLome. People clamoring for Brissett to start, even if he looks slightly better than Howell in the preseason, are nuts. Brissett is a backup. We don't know yet with Howell. Give this dude the start in week one and let him learn. If he stinks, draft a quarterback next year and move on. Fingers crossed that Ron doesn't botch this one. (laughs) Thank you for the email, Chris. Hey, as I have said multiple times, Sam Howell is not your normal fifth round quarterback. Yes, the commanders did take him in the fifth round of the 2022 NFL draft. And yes, the overwhelming majority of non-first round NFL quarterbacks do not become good quarterbacks. That is an undeniable reality. But also, yes, Sam isn't your normal fifth round quarterback because most non-first round quarterbacks aren't guys who in the off seasons prior to the NFL drafts in which those quarterbacks were selected were viewed as potential number one overall picks. Sam was. He had a 2021 junior season for a North Carolina team that lost a lot of key skill position players from the previous season, although it's not like he had some terrible 2021 season. And then things got really strange with the quarterbacks in the 2022 draft to where they like all fell, especially those not named Kenny Pickett, uh, who the Pittsburgh Steelers took with the number 20 overall pick. And well, yeah, the quarterback class for the 2022 draft was not viewed as being very good. We are still talking about the position of quarterback, the most important position in sports. And so for only one quarterback to be taken over the first 73 picks in the 2022 draft remains very odd. And given that the very last player taken in the draft was current San Francisco 49ers quarterback Brock Purdy, who pretty clearly should have been taken a lot higher than that last pick in the draft. Well, I don't think that it's crazy to think that maybe just maybe some of these quarterbacks in the 2022 draft falling as much as they did was overly punitive. And yeah, regarding the quarterback competition of Sam Howell versus Jacoby Brissett, if the competition is close, Sam should get the nod because Sam has upside or at least perceived upside. Jacoby is more of a set and known commodity at this point in his NFL career. Although, you know, there are some quarterbacks who do blossom in their 30s. So we can't say with like complete certainty that there's no upside with Jacoby. I mean, what happened with the Seattle Seahawks, Geno Smith, this past season, his success, uh, that is a reminder that you never truly know with quarterbacks. Uh, Email from Rich writes, Rich, I hope that Jacoby works out, not only because he shares a name with a legendary Skins player, but because Jacoby has the opportunity to create a local cash cow for himself. After finishing his career with the Commanders, he could open Jacoby's Brisket, Beef Brisket, and Whole Hog Barbecue. He could feature a retro theater vision and have the other Jacoby do flashback commercial reruns, maybe come up with some Washington football theme menu items, pig skins, potato skins with bacon, special house ketchup with the number 33, and a picture of Daryl Green. Since Jacoby doesn't have an agent, I'm not sure how to run this by him. Any advice? Uh, thank you. For the email, Rich, uh, well, would we call Jacoby Brissett's restaurant Jacoby's Brisket or Jacoby's Brisket? I'm not sure of the answer to that. But I am sure of this. If you have a case, you should contact the law firm 
of Polson and Nace. Polson and Nace. It is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C., and West Virginia. Call 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Polson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Polson and Nace treats its clients with respect and dignity and wants what is best for the firm's clients. Polson and Nace will treat you, your family, and your situation with the care and expertise that you deserve. Uh, Polson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Polson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. Heck, this past July, Polson and Nace won a case for which the United States government must pay nearly $1.8 million. Polson and Nace took on the U.S. government and won. If you have a case, contact Polson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Polson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, tell Polson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You can also visit polsonandnace.com. That's polsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Polson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Polson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Polson and Nace take care of your family. Well, in terms of actual Commanders football news over the last few days, uh, the Commanders on Friday afternoon announced the signing of unrestricted free agent interior defensive lineman Abdullah Anderson. Uh, this is a depth move. Uh, Anderson is going into his age 27 season. He came into the NFL as an undrafted free agent at a Bucknell in May 2018 with the Chicago Bears. He spent time with a bunch of NFL teams, the Bears, Minnesota Vikings, Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, Green Bay Packers, uh, two stints, in fact, with the Packers, uh, Tennessee Titans, and Atlanta Falcons. Uh, Anderson had barely played in any NFL regular season games until this past season. He, in the 2022 regular season with the Falcons, played in 16 games with eight starts, played on 38.59% of the Falcons' defensive snaps. Uh, He's not a certainty to even make the commander's initial 53-man roster for the 2023 season, but he is an option, and he is coming off a step-forward season. But the biggest commander's news of the last few days was not the Abdullah Anderson (laughs) news, okay? The biggest commander's news of the last few days has had to do with the Dan Snyder saga. Uh, Saturday night was nuts. All kinds of rumors that the sale of the commanders had been agreed on, or at the very least was very close. Commander's insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington, uh, he really got things going because he on Saturday night tweeted, quote, Commander's sale news was in red zone and now first in goal, end quote. Uh, longtime Washington, D.C. area sports writer Rick Snyder, he on Saturday night tweeted, quote, let me just say this for now. Multiple sources say a deal has been made. Just can't say 100 percent who it's with and not guessing after 45 years in biz. I'm not going out that way. End quote. Then on Sunday morning, Commander's Insider Ben Standig of The Athletic, uh, he had a piece in which he reported that the Commanders are delaying 
signing bonus payouts for new contracts more than normal. For instance, the contract extension for interior defensive lineman Duran Payne. So that extension was signed on March 13th, but it is to have its first payment by May 12th as opposed to the usual 15 to 30 days after the signing of the contract. That certainly would seem to be a sign that the sale of the commanders is imminent, because if you are Dan Snyder, why make bonus payments that you can delay and have the next owner of the team pay instead of you? Well, here we are on this Monday installment of the podcast. Still nothing concrete on a sale of the commanders having been agreed on, but we all are on Commander's Sale Watch. Uh, as you may recall, it was this past Thursday night that Pro Football Talk's Mike Florio reported that uh, Commander's co-owners and co-CEOs, Dan and Tanya Snyder, had, quote, cleared out of the team's facility in advance of the sale of the team. As one source explained it, they left in late December, and quote, then we on Friday got two reports from a friend of the Al Galdi podcast, sports business insider A.J. Perez of Front Office Sports. Uh, these reports had to do with the financial scandal. Remember, with our football team, there is the workplace misconduct scandal and there is the financial scandal. Know your scandals. Uh, the first report from Perez on Friday was about Mary Jo White in her investigation of Dan Snyder and Washington having, quote, uncovered more financial concerns, end quote, than had been reported to date. Perez reported that White is, quote, looking into whether any loans, including the $450 million the NFL approved in 2021 that allowed Snyder to buy out three co-owners were used improperly, end quote. Perez also reported that Dan Snyder last year went back to paying himself a salary, quote, along with what one source called a substantial raise, end quote. Perez reported that, per sources, Mary Jo White is determining whether Dan's salary came from that NFL-approved loan, which likely had conditions attached as to how that money could be used. Now, regarding Dan paying himself a salary, so ESPN senior writer Don Van Nata Jr. in his bombshell report on Dan that came out on February 28th revealed that Dan had paid himself a $10 million salary. Uh, Perez in this report that came out on Friday noted that Dan is, quote, thought to be one of the few owners, maybe the only one in the league to pay himself a salary. Snyder's was $10 million before the start of the pandemic, which prompted him to forego his salary, end quote. Also from A.J. Perez was him in a report that came out on Friday evening, providing more on the federal criminal investigation that we learned of from the Don Van Nada Jr. report that came out on February 28th. Uh, Perez reported that the federal criminal investigation could include evidence that had been obtained by Congress's House Committee on Oversight and Reform in its investigation of Washington's workplace misconduct scandal, quote, including allegations lawyers slash investigators working for Snyder acted as imposters, end quote. Yes, lawyers slash investigators for Dan allegedly pretending to be people they were not. Uh, Perez also reported that the federal criminal investigation included Dan being investigated for allegedly leaking confidential information in his legal battle with his uh, three former minority owners of the team, Dwight Shar, 
Fred Smith, and Robert Rothman, wrote Perez, quote, another potential target of the feds is what Snyder told the judge during a hearing as part of a lawsuit filed by the three former co-owners against Snyder. Lawyers for Shar Smith, and Rothman alleged in a December 2020 filing that Snyder or his agents have disclosed to the New York Times confidential information about discussions in violation of the judge's order that it remain under seal, end quote. So a lot to take in from the last few days. My biggest takeaway from the A.J. Perez stuff is this. This Mary Jo White investigation may well still be going on, as amazing as that may seem. You know, the Mary Jo White investigation isn't just into the allegations of former team employee Tiffany Johnston against Dan Snyder. The investigation also is about this financial scandal. That report from Don Van Nata Jr. provided massive new details regarding the financial scandal. So while I would think that the portion of the Mary Jo White investigation regarding the allegations of Tiffany Johnston was completed long ago, the portion of the Mary Jo White investigation regarding the financial scandal may still be going on. And that would explain why the findings of this investigation, which started more than a year ago, still have not come out. Uh, the Mary Jo White investigation was announced in February 2022. Uh, we are in March 2023, and yet still zero findings or conclusions from the investigation have come out to say nothing of a written report. In the meantime, what about the sale of the commanders? Time now for our special guest. Well, what appears to be the case with the sale of the Commanders is that the leading contender to buy the team is the group led by Philadelphia 76ers managing partner and New Jersey Devils managing partner Josh Harris, a group that billionaire Mitchell Rails has joined. We found uh, that out via multiple reports on March 9th. Uh, the addition of Rails added big time money to the group. However, there may well be a lot about the sale of the Commanders that we do not know, like say, a mystery bidder or mystery bidders. And it's still not clear to what extent Amazon founder Jeff Bezos is involved in the bidding. What's pretty clear is that he has wanted to be in the bidding. Uh, we going back to November 3rd had multiple reports that Bezos was interested in buying the commanders and understand that November 3rd was just one day after the commanders put out a statement that the team's co-owners and co-CEOs, Dan and Tanya Snyder, were exploring a sale of the team. Of course, we also have had reports that Dan has prevented Jeff from entering the bidding for the team due to Jeff's ownership of the Washington Post, with which the Danny has feuded for years. But a friend of this podcast, business journalist Josh Kosman of the New York Post, uh, he on March 10th reported that Jeff Bezos, quote, recently signed a confidentiality agreement signaling he may finally be allowed to enter the bidding process, sources close to Bezos told The Post. It was not clear whether Bezos inked the confidentiality pact with Snyder or the NFL. End quote. The belief remains that if Jeff Bezos wants the commanders and is allowed in the bidding, then the team is his because he can take his bid to a level that no other known or suspected bidder could. And so what about Jeff Bezos? As we appear to be closing in 
on the sale of the commanders being agreed on, if it hasn't been agreed on already, what about Jeff Bezos, one of the most famous people in the world? What about this guy who could be the next owner of the commanders? I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, a Jeff Bezos insider, a Jeff Bezos expert, Brad Stone. Uh, Brad Stone is the senior executive editor for technology at Bloomberg News, and he is the author of two books about Jeff Bezos. Uh, The first book, which came out in 2013, is The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. The second book, which came out in 2021, is Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. You can follow Brad on Twitter at Brad Stone. Brad, it's good to talk to you. How are you? Hi, Al. Good. Good to talk to you. Uh, these books that you've written about Jeff Bezos, is he himself a fan of the books or is he not a fan of the books? Well, I can, I, you know, there's some ambiguity there, but I can tell you quite uh, explicitly that he was not a fan of the first book. It was called The Everything Store. It came out in 2013. And uh, folks might remember because it was quite uh, quite remarked upon at the time that he 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 got a, a number of his colleagues and family members to give me one star reviews, <laughs> including as on Amazon, of course, including his uh, now ex wife Mackenzie Bezos. But you know, over the year, and there were some reasons for that. Um, I I had dug up some family history uh, of his, but over the years, I I think like he came to acknowledge that that book was a definitive take. On, on his early years as an entrepreneur. And then Amazon worked with me on, on the recent book that you just mentioned. Uh, I don't know if I'm getting invited to the super yacht anytime soon, but uh, I would say, you know, things are somewhat amicable. So you, in doing these books, did not have cooperation from Jeff Bezos. Is that correct? You know, it's, just, it, it's a complicated question. I mean, he always allowed me to talk to family members and f- personal friends and you know, I had I got great access to Amazon executives. I had interviewed him a number of times over the years. I started covering him in the late 90s. I was a reporter at Newsweek magazine. Then I was the Amazon beat reporter at the New York Times. I came over to Bloomberg. And so I'd spoken to him and seen him at conferences when he when he when he went to those, uh, you know, many times over the years. So I would say I, I was happy with the cooperation I got, even though I approached the books uh, very much Uh, from the vantage point of an independent journalist. Okay, well, I wanted to have you on to give us an in-depth perspective on what the commanders would be getting in Jeff Bezos if he buys the team. I know that you've been following him potentially buying the commanders. Do you think that he would make for a good owner of an NFL team? First of all, I can see a number of reasons why the NFL owners would want him, right? I mean, first of all, let's not overthink it. He's he's well positioned to make the highest bid, and that will increase the value of the franchises for all the owners. He is someone who is very technologically savvy in an age of disruption and transformation. He can be, you know, one of those uh, um, uh, uh, Sherpas for the for the NFL owners as they transition all of their media deals and and seek to, you know, they've already done a pretty good job of positioning the NFL for the 21st century. And of course, who wouldn't want to be in a room with Jeff Bezos, right? He's one of the famous, most famous and lauded entrepreneurs of of our age. I have to say, you know, Al, it's it is surprising to me, maybe it shouldn't be, that he'd want to be an NFL owner. I mean, if you had thought, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have said it is the farthest thing in the world from his interests. 
Um, here, here was a guy who for a long time was single-mindedly focused on the fortunes of Amazon uh, with a little time left over for uh, his personal pursuit of space exploration. He started a space company, Blue Origin. Um, and, and yet, you know, the Jeff Bezos we see today is a completely different guy. I mean, he, over the last couple of years, not only the changes in his personal life, but he's left uh, being the CEO of Amazon and become the executive chairman. He's instead of a resident of Seattle, he's a citizen of the world showing up uh, at Oscars parties uh, with the, visiting the president of France and receiving the Legion of Honor Award in Washington, D.C. at Washington Post events. Like His interests have, have changed. I think he's really invested in a kind of personal renewal and reinvention. That's, of course, extended to his personal life, his partner, Lauren Sanchez, obviously, you know, and her one of her close friends and a former uh, romantic partner, Tony Gonzalez, they hang out with them all the time. And so I just think like his personal interests maybe now more align with owning an NFL franchise than they ever did. As you just hit on, Jeff Bezos really has become a big-time celebrity. Uh, There are many kinds of NFL owners. A major issue with Dan Snyder as owner of Washington has been him meddling in football operations, uh, which uh, isn't exactly his area of expertise. Does Jeff Bezos strike you as someone who, as an NFL owner, would very much be front and center and would very much be involved in the day-to-day football operations? Or do you think that he would be an NFL owner who stayed in the background and let his football people do the football things. Very much the latter, Al. He is someone who um, hires someone, a a professional, a veteran. At the Washington Post, it was uh, a guy named Fred. It is a guy named Fred Ryan, a former uh, Reagan administration um, member who, who, who runs it with a lot of independence. At Blue Origin, the space company, it's a former aeros- it's a it's a, a veteran aerospace and former Honeywell executive named Bob Smith. He hires pros. What he does is he changes the culture a little bit. He's a big believer in the power of written documents to make decisions. He does this at Amazon every. <laughs> prepare yourself for for the for a day when draft decisions are made with six page memos. If you're <laughs> if you're a member of the Commanders franchise, because this is what he does. He he has everyone prepare these documents. You sit in a meeting quietly, reading and contemplating the document. Then you have a discussion. Uh, the boss speaks last. It, it is the way he conducts business at all his companies. But I would say he is. Because as what we've been discussing, he's now a man of the world. He runs a climate organization, a philanthropy also, a lot of different commitments. I think he's someone who's likely to let his his appointed person run the franchise with a lot of independence. But then co- he'll, he will come in you know, once a week, once a month, uh, have meetings, kind of audit things. And when he needs to course correct... And I'll give you an example. There's been a little bit of an insurrection at the Washington Post with employees uh, kind of angry with management. He came and spent a couple of days at the Post attending meetings. He's done that with Blue Origin also. So I think he'll, he'll let the thing run independently of the franchise, but it'll come in. He'll, he'll have regular meetings and then he'll come in uh, more, more regularly if he thinks the franchise needs it. 
You've mentioned Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post. Uh, He bought that in 2013. One of the more telling things about Dan Snyder is that he has struggled in multiple business ventures uh, beyond his uh, advertising slash marketing venture that netted him his fortune in the 1990s. We know that Bezos' ownership of the Washington Post has not been smooth sailing. The paper has a lot of problems. Now, how much of that is just a function of the newspaper business in 2023 as opposed to mistakes that Bezos has made? Hard to say, but what to you is an accurate assessment of Bezos's ownership tenure of the Washington Post? Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good question. And people will have different opinions on that. I mean, there are those who say that the, you know, they look at the success that the New York Times has had with its, its digital business, with uh, the acquisition of, of various games and adding it to the New York Times bundle and just the subscriber growth and profitability of the Times. And they say, you know, and they, and they find the post lacking. I mean, I think we, we probably, you probably need to give Jeff Bezos some credit early on back in 2013 for putting the paper uh, on stable financial footing uh, at a precarious time. And he did that. And then in 2016, uh, had the maybe kind of artificial bounce and in reader interest and subscription interest of the, of the Trump years. You know, but since then, I think the paper has found itself uh, swimming upstream a little bit. And there's been a lot of turnover of stars. And, um, you know, the, the digital business hasn't grown at the pace of its rivalsness, the analog business. And as, as we were talking about, Al, you know, Bezos is a little bit of an absentee owner. He's got to be. He's got so much going on, um, and, and including, you know, enjoying life right now quite conspicuously if you if you follow the tabloids. And so I think because he's an absent owner, um, you know, things haven't gone well recently. So maybe my, my short answer is over the long term, he's done a nice job with the asset. You know, more recently, I think some questions have arisen about the leadership he's installed there and about his own interest and attention. We're talking Jeff Bezos with author Brad Stone, who has written two books about Bezos. Uh, Why did Bezos buy the Washington Post? You know, what he says is that it was it was almost uh, an impulsive reaction to the interest uh, to the offer made by the previous owners, Don Graham, the, you know, a pitch to him at the Allen and Company conference back in 2013. Uh, the Post was struggling. He thought that it was an institution that was worth saving. And, uh, you know, for him, what it was a 250 million, you know, it was easy for him to do. And it was going to be a test for him of some of his business principles, his philosophies, the culture of reading, the way he made decisions, and, and could it succeed outside of a tech company? Now, over the years, like I've, you know, posited and, and others have guessed, you know, maybe there were alternate interests in terms of establishing himself in D.C., currying favor with politicians, uh, you know, amassing political influence. I, we can't say for sure that was on his mind. If it was, it hasn't been that successful. Like, if anything, he kind of suffered during the Trump years. Amazon suffered. And this is a great illustration with the commanders. Like, we, you know, the, it's been reported that Dan Snyder really doesn't like the guy. And if that's true, I, I have a hard time imagining it's personal. It probably is related to the Post's aggressive and dogged coverage of, of Snyder's tenure. And so buying the Post has kind of hurt him in, in other business ways. Yeah, Dan Snyder has feuded with the Washington Post for years, going back to before uh, Jeff Bezos owned the Post. Uh, what would you say are the most valid criticisms of Jeff Bezos? 
Boy, there, there, there are certainly a lot. There, there are many I make uh, in in my books. Um, you know, one of them is that he tends to treat you know the people who work for him uh, in a transactional way. Kind of you know uses them up, spits them out. And this is, you know, really readily apparent on the on the floors of an Amazon warehouse where, you know, workers can toil for a couple of years, and they're and they're basically kind of steered for the exits. Their the raises are parsimonious. The working conditions are brutal. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, Amazon tries to invent ways to replace them with robots, right? And 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 there are all sorts of mechanisms in the compensation systems at Amazon, even in the offices, to ensure that people. You know, who don't get complacent that if they're not advancing within the hierarchy, they're they're gently steered away. Now, you know, under Andy Jassy, his successor, you can say some of those things have been have been lessened. Um, it, it's a little bit of a warmer place. You get different uh, um, testimony from p- people in that big company, depending on where they are. But I think that's the the, the main one. You know, that he's he's doing Bezos is doing a lot. And, you know, like, look, everybody in the world works for him, right? I mean, he Amazon's got a million employees, um, or more, maybe almost a million and a half. They've, they've had layoffs recently. But, um, and, and so, you know, he tends to treat people like little atomic units of labor. I think that's kind of the main criticism and a lot of the ancillary critiques of Amazon, the way it treats partners, uh, antitrust, all that. It, it almost fits into this framework, you know, that he's... He's he's uh, you know single minded in his pursuits, and he can be a little unempathetic in his personal dealings. You may have just answered this next question, and this may sound like an odd question, but is Jeff Bezos perceived as a nice person, as a good person? And I totally get that that is a subjective thing, and you know there are good people who do bad things, and bad people who do good things, and we live in a world of shades of gray, but Dan Snyder is notoriously not a nice person. He has made a lot of enemies. His ownership tenure of Washington has resulted in multiple scandals and countless investigations. What about Bezos? Is he viewed as a good person or, you know, is he viewed as a ruthless billionaire as Dan is? Yeah. You know, for the people who work for him, who were by his side in the, in the trenches, um, you know, who went through Amazon's many ups and downs. I don't know that they would call him warm or nice. Um, there's there's a lot of loyalty among a lot of people. Amazon, you know, had people on the on the senior staff who had worked there for two decades. But no, I don't think nice or or warm would would be the adjectives. Now, you know, on the on the other hand, um, he's he has changed a lot. I mean, the fact that you know he's he's going to Oscar parties and and um, and, and is cultivating kind of, you know, relationships in, in the NFL. Like I, I do, he, you know, people, you know, I, I think he's fully capable and does like light up a room when he walks in and, you know, people are sort of energized to meet him and they come away feeling good. I don't know that that would necessarily have been true 20 years ago when he was much more single minded. So, but look, I mean, in, in terms of your, if you're a fan of the commanders, maybe that kind of brutal efficiency and, uh, you know, mercenary decision-making is sort of something you want. I don't know where niceness fits into it. 
in just about any other circumstance, niceness would not matter. And I'm not even sure that it does matter in this circumstance of the sale of the commanders, but things with Dan Snyder have been so bad in so many ways that you certainly could argue that the commanders would benefit from having, you know, a good and decent person (laughs) as their owner. But what matters the most to me is an owner who is smart and presides over an operation that does well. Final question, in all of the research that you did for these books about Jeff Bezos uh, and all of the conversations that you had with people for these books about Jeff Bezos, did anything about Bezos surprise you? Well, I mean, almost everything was surprising. Um, you know, the, the fact that um, there was a whole bunch of interesting family history in, in the first book, which I uncovered. He never knew his biological father. I, I found his biological father uh, working, at, working on a bike shop outside uh, Phoenix. He didn't know who his son was. That was crazy. Um, the way in which, you know, Jeff sort of single-handedly invented things like the Kindle, um, Amazon's cloud business, Alexa. Um, these were ideas that kind of sprang, you know, from from his head. And then he he sort of put together the the armies of engineers and and executives to make them real. Um, you know, the fact that like Amazon itself for a long time was kind of scaffolding around his brain. You know, that was that was surprising. And then in the last book, I, I was writing it when he underwent his very public split from Mackenzie Bezos, uh, you know, Lawrence Sanchez, uh, that relationship, it was, it was all shocking, um, you know, that he went underwent such a public, uh, transformation. I'll say one more thing, Alan, and I think it's maybe a little relevant, um, to this. One thing that has surprised me is his, is his, uh, I guess, persistent animosity toward unions, and what they represent. And, you know, we see it at the post. We definitely see it at Amazon. He's, he believes unions are a unnecessary intermediary and an inefficient one between management and workers. And, um, you know, Amazon has waged very public battles. It, the HQ2 thing, of course, which, uh, you know, affects, affects you guys there in the Washington area was in many ways, you know, carried out because um, there was there was pressure in Seattle, and then they left New York because there were there was a lot of acrimony coming from unions. And so, if he were to join the the ownership of uh, you know of the of the NFL, that would be interesting to watch too. And I know the dynamics are a little different there, but he he is an anti union warrior. Well, that's probably music to the NFL's ears that uh, Jeff Bezos is not a friend of unions. Uh, Brad Stone, the author of two books about Jeff Bezos, the first book, which came out in 2013, is The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos in the Age of Amazon. The second book, which came out in 2021, is Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos in the Invention of a Global Empire. Brad, thanks a lot for your time. Continued success. All right, Al, good to talk to you. All right. Great insight from Brad Stone on Jeff Bezos. Uh, If you have like 20 seconds, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast. Uh, You on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can rate the podcast. Five-star ratings are very much appreciated. And you on Apple Podcasts can write a review saying that you like the podcast. The review doesn't have to be long. It can be just a sentence or two, but the ratings and the reviews help out the podcast a lot. So thank you for doing them. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, 
and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, later in the show, I'm going to talk Wizards. Uh, right now, we talk Capitals. The Caps and the Wiz, uh, the top two properties of Ted Leonsis's monumental sports empire. Uh, they are two peas in a pod right now. Uh, each team has just 11 games left in its regular season. Each team is fading, and each team lost two games over the weekend. Uh, for the Caps, Friday night, a 5-2 loss. To the St. Louis Blues at Capital One Arena as the Caps and playing at home against the sub-500 Blues team got ripped by a final score of 5-2 Sunday afternoon, a 5-3 loss at the Minnesota Wild, which is a good team. The Wild is second in the Central Division, but the Caps now are just 11-18-1 since their 22-13-6 start. They are 33 31 and seven overall. They, at 73 points, are five points behind the Pittsburgh Penguins for the Eastern Conference's second and final wildcard spot. The Caps, in each game over the weekend, got ripped. Uh, The 5-2 loss to the Blues at Capital One Arena on Friday night. The Caps committed 17 giveaways to the Blues' six, and the Caps had a very inspired third period, but that was too little too late. The Caps over the first two periods got outscored 4 nothing, even though the puck possession battle was slightly in their favor. The Caps then in a third period that they won 2-1 dominated the puck possession battle, totaling 13 shots on goal to the Blues 4 and per natural stat trick, totaling 23 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Blues 4. Then in the 5-3 loss at the Wild on Sunday afternoon, the Caps in the third period trailed 4-1, uh, the Caps were horrendous in terms of high danger chances. The Caps for natural stat trick totaled a mere two five-on-five high danger shot attempts to the Wilds 11. Think about that. Two five-on-five high danger shot attempts the entire game versus the Wild having 11. Now, we on Sunday afternoon did have a great game from the grade eight. This was great to see. Winger Alex Ovechkin, two power play goals and a secondary assist, a game high eight shots on goal, a game high 11 total shot attempts, and a game high six hits. Uh, Awesome game from Ovechkin. Uh, This was off him on Friday night, having a third period primary assist, a game high tying 
four shots on goal and a game-high tying seven total shot attempts, although he also had a game-worst tying plus-minus rating of minus four. But it was nice to see Ovi do as he did over the weekend, especially on Sunday afternoon. But this game on Sunday afternoon at the Wild also was a, wait for it, Wild game. Uh, The Caps and Wild on Sunday afternoon combined for 11 two-minute minors, four five-minute fighting majors, and two 10-minute game misconducts. Uh, The two 10-minute game misconducts went to two caps, uh, wingers TJ Oshie and Tom Wilson. Oshie totaled four penalties for 19 minutes. Uh, Wilson uh, did have two third-period primary assists, but Oshie racked up a good chunk of his penalty minutes uh, in coming to the defensive center. Evgeny Kuznetsov, who left the game after taking a high blindside hit from wild defenseman Matt Dumba, early in the third period, prompting a fight between Oshie and Dumba. Caps head coach Peter Laviolette during his postgame session with reporters on Sunday afternoon. Uh, Not happy about the game or about the hit on Kuznetsov and not really in the mood to talk at all. (laughs) Uh, Take a listen. You you mentioned, you know, getting to that first TV timeout. Yeah, it wasn't good. So it wasn't good. The hit on Evgeny. Um, did you get an explanation on that? And did you feel like that was kind of a turning point in the third there? I don't know if it's a turning point. I don't like the hit. You know what I mean? A player is vulnerable like that. And takes a pop at his head. I don't like the hit. Do you feel like sometimes these these last games, the last meetings of the season between a couple of interconference rivals, can they seem to have a tendency sometimes to, to get a little chippy or a little? Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I'm not sure on that. Yeah, <laughs> Peter Laviolette, Coach Lavi, uh, not interested in the give and take <laughs> with the media after the game. Also, goaltender Darcy Kemper on Sunday afternoon, unavailable due to an upper body injury that he suffered in practice on Saturday. Charlie Lindgren was the cap starting goaltender, and he stopped just 35 of the 40 shots on goal that he faced. Wild winger Matt Boldy had a hat trick. The Caps' goaltending lately has not been good. Kemper was the Caps' starting goaltender for the loss to the Blues at Capital One Arena on Friday night, and he in that game stopped just 17 of the 21 shots on goal that he faced, and all four of the goals that Kemper allowed were even strength goals. Yeah, the Caps, over their two losses over the weekend, went four of four on the penalty kill. So Lindgren on Sunday afternoon allowed five even strength goals, and Kemper on Friday night allowed four even strength goals. Uh, while we're talking injuries, so we now know more about what happened to defenseman John Carlson. He has been out since being struck on the side of the head slash face by a slap shot by Jets defenseman Brendan Dillon in a 4-1 Caps win over the Winnipeg Jets at Capital One Arena on December 23rd. Well, Caps insider Tarek El-Bashir of The Athletic in a piece that came out on Friday evening revealed that Carlson had suffered a fractured skull and a severed temporal artery. Yeah. Now, Carlson may actually be back soon, but how about that? A fractured skull and a severed temporal artery. Uh, Just brutal. Uh, The Caps also remain without wingers Connor Brown and Carl Hagelin due to injury. Uh, Winger Sonny Milano on Friday night was back. He did return uh, from a two-game absence caused by illness. He had a third-period secondary assist, giving him 20 assists this regular season, tying his uh, career high for most assists in an NHL regular season. And speaking of assists, 
defenseman Rasmus Sandin continues to pile up assists. Two more assists over the weekend. Friday night, Sandin, a third period secondary assist, although we did have a game worth tying plus minus rating of minus four. Sunday afternoon, a second period primary assist. Rasmus Sandin now, over eight games with the Caps, has 11 points, one goal, and 10 assists. Uh, also, center Dylan Strom, uh, he on Sunday afternoon had an even strand goal and a secondary assist uh, and went 13 and 4 on faceoffs. Uh, next up for the Caps, home to the NHL worst Columbus Blue Jackets, Tuesday night at 7. All right, let's talk college basketball. Uh, As you know, perspective is everything in life, right? I mean, if you didn't know better, you might think that Maryland on Saturday night losing in the second round of the NCAA tournament and continuing this run of what is just one Sweet 16 appearance since the start of the 2003-2004 season uh, would be tough. And no doubt it was disappointing that Maryland lost, but that Maryland was even in the NCAA tournament, let alone its second round, was an achievement. Uh, The Terrapins had a woeful 2021-2022 season. We last season had the Terps head coach, Mark Turgeon, a.k.a. the Turge, uh, stepping down a mere two days (laughs) before the team's Big Ten opener. Uh, We last season had the Terps going 15-17 and overall for the program's first overall losing record in a season since going 12-16 and overall in the 1992-1993 season. Well, the Terps this season went 22-13 and overall and made the second round of the NCAA tournament in Kevin Willard's first season as Terps head coach. Not bad. Uh, eight-seeded Maryland did lose to one-seeded Alabama, 73-51 on Saturday night at Legacy Arena at the Birmingham-Jefferson Convention Complex in Birmingham, Alabama in the second round of the NCAA tournament. This was a game uh, until it wasn't a game. The Terps early in the second half trailed by just five points at 33-28, but the Terps then lost the rest of the game 40-23. The Terps' defense was good, uh, although they did have a tough time defending without fouling, but the Terps held Bama to just 6 of 21 on threes and just 17 of 37 on twos, did allow Bama to have 28 free throw attempts, although Bama went just 21 of 28 on its free throws. Now, speaking of fouling, uh, the Terps' top big man, Julian Reese, uh, who in Maryland's first round win over West Virginia on Thursday afternoon, did a great job of staying out of foul trouble, uh, was not so fortunate in this game on Saturday night. He played for just 20 minutes as a starter as he committed five fouls, the second of which was a highly questionable call that in a lot of ways changed the game. Reese went 6-10 from the field, all twos, uh, just 2-5 of five on free throws. He finished with 14 points, but also just two rebounds. Here was Kevin Willard during his postgame press conference late night on Saturday night on Julian Reese's foul trouble and then you'll hear multiple follow-up exchanges. I, I, the, the second foul call was uh, – uh, his first foul was a foul, but his second foul call was mysterious, and even the third one. I, you know, I've played, with, I've played him with two fouls all year. Um, you, know, you can't call that second foul, not in an NCAA tournament game. That's just my feeling on it. I think, I think it was a horrible call, and I thought it changed the outcome of the game. I can elaborate a lot on it, but I'll probably get in a lot of trouble. So, I mean, I can go in that much trouble, or you want me to go in this much trouble? Because I don't, I mean, it's it's the second call was a terrible foul call. And you can't take a best player out of the game when the game was physical as it was. And it was a horrible call. 
it, it changed our whole game plan. We were going to pound it inside, pound it inside. I mean, we, that's what we've been doing for the last two months of the season. We've we've played through Julian. We've played at the high post through Julian. We played down low through Julian. Um, he draws fouls. He draws double teams. I mean, he plays. I don't know where minutes are in this on this statute. This is like the this is this might be worse than that foul call. Next one. So he plays 21 minutes and he's minus four. So that just tells you how valuable he was uh, to this game. So um, you know, I, I will continue to play him with two fouls because I trust him. Um, but even even the third foul was like you know, I almost think like you got to be looking at him and put him on the bench. That's how I feel. Yeah, Kevin Willard may be paying a fine uh, for those comments. We'll see. But here's the deal. The officiating did not cost the Terps the game. The officiating didn't help, but Maryland's offense was the thing. The Terps' offense was not good. Uh, They scored just 51 points, went just one of eight on threes, just 18 of 46 on twos, and just 12 of 21 on free throws and finished with just six assists versus 13 turnovers. Yeah, Maryland had six assists for the entire game. Alabama is a very good defensive team, has a lot of length. You know, Bama through games on Saturday was number three in the nation in KenPalm.com's adjusted defensive efficiency, which is points allowed per 100 possessions adjusted for opponents. Maryland this season was really good defensively, but Kevin Willard has got to get himself some better shooters, especially on threes. Uh, Jameer Young on Saturday night, 36 minutes as a starter. He went 0 of 1 on threes and just 5 of 12 on twos. Had no assists versus four turnovers. He did go 2 of 2 on free throws. Did finish with 12 points and three rebounds. Uh, The up and down, Dante Scott was down on Saturday night. He in 36 minutes as a starter, 0 of 7 from the field. 0 of 1 on threes, 0 of 6 on twos. He went Three of four on free throws. He finished with just three points, although he did have seven rebounds, including two offensive boards. But again, as a Maryland fan, as someone who went to Maryland, I can't be mad about Saturday night because this season ended up being so much better than anyone could have realistically expected. Uh, In fact, here was Kevin Willard during his postgame press conference late night on Saturday night on his postgame message to his team. And then you'll hear a follow-up exchange. It was simple. You know, I, I told these guys... You know, I think today's March 18th. I got hired on March 21st to kind of. I told them that you know these guys had had really done an unbelievable job of coming together and turning this program into what you know, getting it going in the right direction. And it was it was done with an unbelievable attitude. It was done with an unbelievable work ethic. And I was just extremely proud of them. They made this by far my best coaching year I've ever had. You know, it's, it's very difficult to move your family. It's very difficult to to leave someplace that you, you love very much and come to a new place. And these guys made this year absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I was just, I told them I was, I was proud of them. I loved them. And I, I said, thank you. Off that point, um, how did this year kind of, shape with your expectations from when you first accepted the job and now that you're a year later um, what would your thoughts be on on where Maryland basketball is compared to what you thought it was when when you came in yeah I mean we're in the second round of the NCAA tournament in 353 days Um, 
it's a good first step. I mean, we have we have we have a lot more steps that we need to take as a program, and we will get there. But like I said, if you had told me I'd be playing in the second round, inheriting five guys on the roster, I would have told you you're nuts. Yeah, good stuff from Kevin Willard right there. So Maryland's season is over. Also over is VCU's season. Uh, 12-seeded VCU lost to 5-seeded St. Mary's 63-51 at MVP Arena in Albany, New York on Friday afternoon in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Uh, VCU this season won both the A-10 regular season title and the A-10 tournament title. VCU, to me, is one of the more underrated programs in college basketball. VCU this season made the NCAA tournament for the 13th time over the last 19 seasons in which there have been NCAA tournaments. Remember, no NCAA tournament in 2020 due to COVID. But this run for VCU has happened with five different head coaches. Jeff Capel, Anthony Grant, Shaka Smart, Will Wade, and Mike Rhodes. How many other programs in college basketball have done this? 13 NCAA tournament appearances over 19 seasons with five different head coaches. Uh, The run started with the 2003-2004 season. VCU prior to that season had made the NCAA tournament just once over the previous 18 seasons. Uh, This season was Mike Rhodes' sixth season as VCU head coach. He was named the Rams head coach in March 2017. He has led VCU to the NCAA tournament in three of the five seasons in which there have been NCAA tournaments during his tenure as VCU head coach. And how about this from college basketball insider Jeff Goodman of Stadium? Uh, He on Saturday evening tweeted that Mike Rhodes is on Georgetown's list of head coaching candidates if Providence head coach Ed Cooley turns down the Hoyas. Uh, Although the widespread expectation is that Cooley will be Georgetown's next head coach. We shall see. Well, the Wizards, uh, they had a bad weekend that actually was a good weekend. Uh, The Wizards continue to fade, fade big time out of uh, Eastern Conference play and tournament contention. That's a good thing. Uh, Our going nowhere Wizards making the Eastern Conference play and tournament, it would mean nothing, okay? (laughs) What is best for the team is losing a lot and improving its odds in the NBA draft lottery. Uh, Two more losses for the Wizards over the weekend. Friday night, a 117-94 loss at the Cleveland Cavaliers. Saturday night, a 132-118 loss to the Sacramento Kings at Capital One Arena. So the Wizards now have lost 5-6 and 7-9. The Wizards are 32-39, and tied with the Indiana Pacers for 11th in the Eastern Conference and a game and a half behind the Chicago Bulls for 10th in the East. Seeds 7-10 in each conference make its play-in tournament. You know, it's funny, the Wizards' two opponents over the weekend, the Cavaliers and Kings, are examples of teams that were bad but have become quite good. Uh, maybe one day that'll be our Wizards, huh? But the Wizards in each game got blown out. Uh, the Wizards and their loss at the Cavs on Friday night never held a lead in the game. And this was despite the Cavs being without a key player in 6'9", Jared Allen, due to a right eye contusion. Uh, the Wizards on Friday night committed 17 turnovers. The uh, Wizards' a big three of Bradley Beal, Chris Dabbs, Porzingis, and Kyle Kuzma combined for 11 of the Wizards' 17 turnovers, and nine of those turnovers came over the first three quarters. And the Wizards on Friday night got demolished in the paint. The Wizards actually held the Cavs to just 419 on threes, but the Wizards got outscored in the paint 78-48, allowing the Cavs to go 39 of 
58 in the paint. Then in the Wizards lost to the Kings at Capital One Arena on Saturday night. The Wizards trailed for every second of the final three quarters. The Wizards in the first quarter did lead by 10 points at 27-17, but the Wizards that allowed the Kings to go on a 1-11-78 run for a 23-point fourth quarter lead at 128-105. The Wizards on Saturday night were without Chris Damps Porzingis. He did not play due to a non-COVID illness, but the Kings on Saturday night were without two key players in Maryland product Kevin Herter and Trey Lyles due to injury. Uh, The Wizards' defense on Saturday night was horrendous. Now, the Kings are an elite offensive team this NBA season. The Kings, through games on Saturday for this regular season, were number one in the NBA in offensive rating per NBA.com. Offensive rating is points scored per 100 possessions, but still, the Wizards on Saturday night got shredded. They allowed the Kings to score 132 points, to go a scorching 22 of 37 on threes, to go 26 of 49 on twos, and to finish with 34 assists versus eight turnovers. And things could have been even worse for the Wizards because the Kings went just 14 of 23 on free throws. The Wizards offense on Saturday night wasn't bad, but just wasn't good enough. The Wizards scored 118 points, went 13 to 36 on threes, 28 to 55 on twos, and 23 to 27 on free throws, and had 27 assists versus 10 turnovers. Those are not bad offensive numbers, but you had to be elite offensively on Saturday night to keep pace with the Kings, the way that the Wizards allowed themselves to be run over by the Kings. Uh, Kyle Kuzma on Saturday night rolled an ankle early in the game, but did return to the game. He, in 31 minutes, 33 seconds as a starter, scored 33 points. He went just 4 of 11 on threes, but also 8 of 12 on twos, 5 of 6 on free throws. He finished with the 33 points, also 7 rebounds, and 3 assists versus no turnovers. So a nice game for Kyle Kuzma. Bradley Beal on Saturday night, 32 minutes, 9 seconds as a starter. He went just to 6 of 13 on twos and committed 4 turnovers. He did go 2 of 4 on threes, 2 of 2 on free throws, finished with 20 points, 3 rebounds, and 2 assists. And Denny Avdia on Saturday night, he played for 28 minutes, 13 seconds off the bench. He had 11 rebounds, including 3 offensive boards, and he had six assists versus one turnover. You love all of that. He also went one of two on threes, but Avdia also went 0 of 7 on twos, and he scored just three points. You know, for all of the talk about it being Avdia's time to shine off the Wizards having traded Rui Hachimura, Avdia has scored eight points or less in 12 of his last 16 games now. Now, basketball is not all about scoring. I totally get that. And one of the things that I really like about Denny Avdia is that he can rebound, he can pass, he can play defense. But, you know, we off the trading away of Rui, we're supposed to see Avdia blossom. And instead, uh, the results have been mixed. I mean, he is getting ample opportunity here. And the results have been mixed. I mean, he hasn't been awful, but he has not been the consistent force that you would like for him to be. Uh, Also, with the Wizards over the last few days, the Wizards on Friday afternoon announced the signing of 27-year-old 6'8 Australian Xavier Cooks to a multi-year contract. We talked about him a few weeks ago. Cooks spent the last four seasons playing for the Sydney Kings of the National Basketball League of Australia. Uh, He was named the 2022 Grand Final MVP, which is the NBL's equivalent of being NBA Finals MVP. And Cooks was named the 2023 NBL regular season MVP. He had a really good college career at Winthrop. He was a 2017-2018 Big South Conference Player of the Year. He, on Saturday night, made his NBA regular season debut, played for five minutes, 
30 seconds off the bench. But yeah, overall, things not good for the Wizards. Here was Wizards head coach Wes Unsell Jr. during his postgame press conference on Saturday night on the state of his team. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, no one's happy about it. No one's um, pleased with where we are um, and the struggles we've had. But I've said it all year. No one feels sorry for us. So, you know, there's no sense in sulking and we got to take some, something from this and we got to learn, we got to get better, we got to be better. Um, you know, it's tough without KP, um, but uh, there's, there's a lot of things we could have done better to kind of help ourselves. Yeah, and what the Wizards can most do to help themselves now is lose. Lose often and lose hard. Uh, The Wizards have 11 regular season games left. 11 more chances to lose. 11 more chances to improve the team's NBA draft lottery odds. Uh, Next up for the Wiz at the Orlando Magic, Tuesday night at 7. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 532. We'll have plenty for you on the commanders. Could it be? Might it be? That we'll have news on the sale of the team. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. It means you're close. Mother's Day is almost here. And you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.